Thank you so much. They do a great job every week, don't they? <clears throat> well, it's good to see everyone today. We are in a new series. We started just last week um, and then jumping into it over the course of the next several weeks. Probably, I don't really know how long this will run us, but probably in toward Thanksgiving. And then, of course, we'll be at Thanksgiving in the Christmas season. But we're doing a, a series we just started last week on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we learned last week, written by Solomon, King Solomon, the son of David. Solomon also is responsible for writing the Old Testament books of Proverbs, uh, the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon, and also a few of the Psalms. Uh, we also learned last week that Solomon was an exceptionally wise king. People would travel from great distances. Dignitaries, other kings of other uh, areas would travel great distances and pay large sums of money just to get uh, Solomon's advice, to hear what Solomon had to say. Uh, we also discovered last week that when Solomon writes Ecclesiastes, unlike the other books that he writes, he's at the end of his life. He's an old man. I think we got a slide picture of him here. Uh, this is a picture by Gustave Daor. It was a painting from the 1800s. Uh, just his uh, attempt to try and capture uh, Solomon at the end of his life as he's writing Ecclesiastes. Um, we also learned last week that Solomon, as an old man, has now grown sour on life. If you remember, he keeps saying that phrase, all is vanity. In other words, life is meaningless. I don't see what the point of all of this is. Um, so he looks around at life and sees, you know what, life, I've tried everything that life has to offer and I've found I've come up empty. And so he just keeps talking about his emptiness. He keeps talking about how life just seems pointless to him. That was Ecclesiastes chapter 1. When we arrive at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon begins to share some of the personal attempts that he has made to try and fill the emptiness that he's been feeling on the inside. The text that we're going to read today is a summary um, of, that, of his, of his ex, uh, experiment, if you would, in trying to find meaning. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're reading verses 9, and, uh, 9 through 11, which is kind of the wrap-up of this little section here. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. For the reading of God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Here we go. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You may be seated. <clears throat> all right. I'm going to back up to the beginning of this section, the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1. Uh, and then we're going to work our way toward those verses that we just read. In chapter 2 and verse 1, Acts is kind of like an introductory statement to this whole little section here in chapter 2. So he says in verse 1, I said in my heart, that is, I said to myself, Come now, self, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Notice at the end of verse 1, he tells the conclusion of the matter. So again, before he even gets into his experiments that he tried, the different things he tried to fill himself, he tells us the conclusion of all those things. He says, but behold, after I enjoyed myself, this too was vanity. So let's take a look at all these indulgences that Solomon participates in. So we'll start at verse 2, indulgence number 1. I said of laughter, it is mad. That is, Solomon tries comedic relief as a means of settling the, the inner turmoil inside of him. 
Perhaps Solomon hired all the best court jesters, uh, perhaps all of the best stand-up comedians in the land, and brought them to his palace. And day after day, these folks entertained Solomon. They entertained the the royal court. And night after night, these folks spewed forth their gut-wrenching routines, right? Uh, And for a while, perhaps, Solomon laughed. For a while, perhaps, Solomon found an escape from the problems and the emptiness within. But as will happen with anything that's new, sooner or later, it starts to what? Starts to grow stale, right? That new car smell eventually goes away. The routines became predictable until finally Solomon says, enough, this is madness. Trying to find meaning through laughter, trying to resolve the inner turmoil inside of me through a comedy routine. He's going, this is just not scratching the itch that I've got. You know, laughter can momentarily distract us. Laughter can momentarily take our minds off our problems. And it's for this reason that the entertainment industry garners so much of our time, garners so much of our money. But ultimately, that's all that it is. It is a distraction. It's an attempt to try and settle ourselves down in the inner turmoil on the inside of us, at least just for a little while. Eventually, the jokes are exhausted, the laughter dies down, we're back in our room, things grow still, and that old familiar pain will resurface. The unresolved relational issues that we've got are still there. Loneliness remains. And And to try and make laughter the solution to our problems is, as Solomon declares, madness. All is vanity. Indulgence number two. Solomon leaves the comedy club, goes to the bar. Uh, Verse three. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, some of the commentators in reading some of this um, took that as Solomon gets like terribly drunk, right? He's a frat boy drunk. He's stumbling around drunk. That's the point. That's, that's the picture that he's painting here of himself, that he indulges himself to the point of binge drinking, that he goes around day after day, week after week, and just this state of uh, slobbery, you know, walking around. These scholars contend that Solomon goes all in on trying to find happiness at the bottom of a bottle. However, based on that little short phrase right there, I tried to cheer my body with wine I don't know, for me, I just felt like maybe, maybe that's saying more than what Solomon's trying to say. Maybe Solomon's not indicating. I don't doubt that Solomon got drunk. I don't doubt that he used wine in that way, um, probably did. But I don't know that him saying, uh, I used wine to cheer my body. I don't know that he's saying that he walked around slobbering drunk all the time. Look at verse 3 again. It says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And then here's this little piece here. It says, my heart, though, still guiding me with wisdom. That doesn't sound to me like somebody who has lost control of all their faculties. That doesn't sound like somebody who has doesn't have their wits about them. In fact, this sounds to me more more he treated wine more like a sommelier might treat wine. Somebody who's looking at wine as a fancy um, distraction, something that he could really get into, something that he could take his royal mind and his royal bank account and could apply to this trade of winemaking. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 4, I made great works, I built houses, and planted vineyards for myself. So I I see Solomon, yeah, perhaps he was pursuing wine for its alcoholic benefits, but I also see him as looking to wine for its provenance. And that, again, makes more sense with someone who has been very ambitious, very successful, and also who is a royal. Um, If you're walking around drunk all the time, I mean, who's minding the store, right? Especially if you're a successful king. Um, however you interpret that statement, I'll let you, y'all are like, Gordon, why did you even get into all that? But it was interesting to me. But, uh, however you interpret that statement, to cheer my body with wine, the end result is the same. 
as with comedic relief. The hole in Solomon's soul remains. He is just as empty, he is just as dissatisfied as he ever was. Indulgence number three, building stuff. Sorry, I don't have a better terminology to describe what he gets ready to say. It's building stuff. All right, so look at verse four with me. He says, I made great works. That is, Solomon went all in on a massive building campaign. That's exactly what he did. Notice he says in there in verse four, I built houses. He doesn't say I built a house. He says I built houses, plural. The first of those houses he built was a temple or a house, a dwelling place for the ark of God where God would come to reside in the midst of his people. Um, I've got a picture for you here of Solomon's temple. The opulence of Solomon's temple was unmatched. Most of the furnishings in the temple were of solid gold or overlaid with gold. Even the walls of the temple were adorned with gold. While the temple project was going on, Solomon was also busy building his own house. 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us that it took 13 years for Solomon to build his house or his palace. Um, scholars tell us that his palace was about 30,000 square feet in size. He used massive stones. He used the best cedar timbers from the Lebanon territory in its construction. He employed some 30,000 Jewish craftsmen to complete the task. Not only was he busy building, but he was also busy during this time and participating in wedding after wedding after wedding after wedding. Solomon got married, we know, 700 times. The scriptures tell us many of that was for the sake of it was political marriages. Um, and so he built houses for all of these, all of all these wives. Some of them lived in the palace, not that many of them. Many of them lived in these out these homes all across uh, the land of Israel. In addition to building all of these homes, Solomon became fascinated with gardening. And by gardening, I don't mean he planted a few rows of corn out back with some tomato plants. I mean, think English gardens. That's what we have in view here. Think uh, ornate uh, plants life and, and, and all sorts of olive groves. Uh, verse 5 says, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Solomon was a visionary builder. He built all inspiring Disney-esque type of environments, places that were a wonder to behold. He even installed an ancient irrigation system to bring water not only to the palace and to the temple, but also for maintaining these beautiful gardens that he had created. He says in verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I've got a couple of pictures for you here that show Solomon's pools. You can see there are three large reservoirs constructed during the reign of Solomon. They were situated about 10 to 15 yards apart with about a 20-foot drop from one pool to the next. They averaged from 350 feet in length out to 550 feet in length. They were anywhere from 25 feet in depth down to 50 feet in depth. And with all three of these pools filled, they held about 75 million gallons of water. An aqueduct system carried the water from the high hill country loca uh, located outside of Bethlehem into the city of Jerusalem, just as Solomon described. Now, what is so exciting for me, and I, I would assume for you as well, about this evidence of these pools here, is that it is yet another piece of archaeological evidence that confirms the accuracy of the biblical record. Friends, this is not a book of myth. All right. This is real people, real places, real time, stuff that really did happen. 
This is the true and accurate account of God's interaction with his people from which we are able to construct our theology, our understanding of who the God of the universe is. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this should give you great confidence to make that step. Because unlike the Book of Mormon and unlike the Muslim Quran and unlike the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu Bible, the claims none of which can be traced in the archaeological record, Unlike those books, the Bible stands alone as confirmed by archaeology from start to finish. You know, sometimes we pray, God, help me believe. I mean, God, if you just send me an angel. That's one I used to pray back when I was a kid. God, if you would just send me an angel, send me something that would let me know that all this is real, that you really are out there. God, send me some evidence that would push me over the edge, that would cause me just to go, oh, absolutely. I mean, send Jesus to knock me off of my horse like you sent to Paul, right? And, and let me be convinced that indeed Jesus is real and that all of this is real. Well, friends, God has sent you evidence. It's called Solomon's Pools. And among many other things. And at some point, it is incumbent on us to take the step of faith. At some point, it is incumbent on us to stop being wishy-washy and to say, God, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior. Stop thinking about it and take the step of faith. Amen? Back to Solomon. So the man built a lot of stuff. Did that fill the emptiness in his soul? Well, he tells us in verse 11. We read it a few moments ago. He writes, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, what I found is that all of it was vanity and a striving after or a chasing after the wind. So Solomon says, With the temple complete, I've now moved into my new home as well. I've got all these beautiful gardens, and I've got water for them. He says, despite all the years of construction, the enormous expense that we went through, the enormous amount of energy and time and vision that it took to accomplish these amazing tasks, now that I'm at the end of it all, Solomon says, I find that I am no more fulfilled than I was at the beginning. How disappointing, right? How can there still be emptiness after achieving all of that mega list of stuff? And that's what Solomon reports, nevertheless, that the hole on the inside of him was just as big as it ever was. You might even say that the hole had grown bigger. Well, Solomon's not done. He's got a couple more indulgences. I'm just going to rattle through these. He says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. That is, he acquired enormous numbers of servants to keep up his gardens, to feed this massive family, to take care of his properties. He says, I had great possessions, verse, uh, verse 7, of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces uh, he's trying to give you some sense of, the, of how much money he had in his bank account. It wasn't just the treasure, treasures like my neighbor, but it's the treasure of all of my neighbors. You put it all together, and that's the kind of treasure that I had. First Kings 10 and verse 14, I don't have that verse for you, but just know this, that Solomon's annual income, just of gold, was reported to be around 50,000 pounds of gold per year. Did a little math on that. That's around $1.1 billion a year 
by today's standards. Annual income. Just a goal. Um, 1 Kings 10 and verse 27 says, The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Friends, this guy had more money than he knew what to do with. In fact, he had to go build barns just to house all of the gold and to house all of the treasure that he had amassed. He says in the middle of verse 8, I got singers, both men and women, so he entertained himself with comedians as well as musicians. Taylor Swift was in the house. And also many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Concubines, in many cases, were used for sexual pleasure. All right, let's just be honest about that. He had 300 of those. In verse 10, he reports, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So basically, Solomon is admitting that he has engaged in full-blown hedonism. I got a slide for you here, and this picture on the slide may be familiar to you. <laughs> right? Our generation's most prolific hedonist. Hedonism is the belief that seeking pleasure is the chief goal of life. And what again was the result of Solomon's hedonistic pursuits? Back to verse 11. Behold, all was vanity. He tried it all. And he said, life is, if this is what life's about. Life is just meaningless. Would you agree that Solomon achieved the pinnacle of worldly success? This guy had everything a person could possibly wish for. He was not just the talk of the neighborhood. He was not just the talk of town. He was not just the talk of the country. He was the talk of the entire region. He had made grand accomplishments. If there was something that he felt was missing from his life or there was something that he wanted, he could get it, he could buy it, or he could build it. Anything he wanted was at his fingertips. And what was his conclusion? Whew. All is vanity. Life is meaningless. What's the point to it all? Ecclesiastes chapter 2. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask that question that I like to ask each week. And that's our most important question, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? That's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, Solomon is not alone in his conclusion uh, that all is vanity. Um, there are other people, modern-day people, who have made great successes in life and yet have found the satisfaction of those successes to be waning. Take Ted Turner, for example. After launching CNN, TBS, and TNT media outlets, and after bringing the Braves franchise back from the dead, right, Turner said, and I quote, life is like a B-grade movie. Ted Turner. You don't want to leave in the middle of it, but you don't want to see it again either. He went on to say, there is no lasting satisfaction. Rod Stewart, maybe you may be familiar with Rod Stewart and his light you know, socket hairdo. After selling millions of albums and packing out stadiums, Rod said, and I quote, most days I wish I were dead. Most days I wish I were dead, except for the three hours that I'm on stage. Sammy Davis Jr. charmed his way into America's hearts. He made millions laugh. When he was interviewed by the Los Angeles Times in 1990 before his death, he said that he tried to bury in his pain in alcohol and cocaine, chasing the delusion that his swinging lifestyle somehow compensated for his two divorces, his estrangement from his children, and his futile efforts to become what he thought others expected him to be. He said, and I quote, I didn't like me. My life was empty. Madonna, some old school stuff here this morning, tell my age. After her rise to fame, said, and I quote, I'm a very tormented person. 
I have a lot of demons on the inside of me. I have moments of happiness, but I cannot say I am ever happy. How about Elvis Presley? Just days before he would overdose on drugs, he wrote in his personal journal, and I quote, I feel so alone sometimes. I'd love to be able to go to sleep. I have no need for all this. Help me, Lord. What does all this confirm? It confirms that worldly success and accumulating wealth and the pursuit of various experiences cannot and will never leave you and I satisfied for the long term. They may satisfy us for a moment, but sooner or later, you wake up after the fling, you recover from all the fun, and the hole in your soul is just as big as it ever was. You might even say it's grown bigger. You say, well, Gordon, how am I supposed to fill that? I mean, if stuff won't do it and experiences won't either, then what will fill the, soul, the hole in my soul? Well, we've seen that hedonism won't do it, but there's an extreme reaction in the opposite direction that won't fill it either. It's called asceticism. Asceticism, got a slide for you here, is the practice of severe self-denial and the avoidance of all forms of indulgence. These are people who live literally on the edge of survival they are in order to try and deny the flesh any uh, place in their lives. These are people who eat just enough to survive. They punish their bodies, hoping to free themselves of the cares of this world. Think of the guy laying on the bed of nails. I mean, that's what asceticism is. And the fellow in that picture that you're seeing there is not a cartoon. That is a real human being. All right, that is a real picture. Um, he's been trying to, uh, trying to spend, he spent his life avoiding indulgences. I may have told you the story before about the Trappist monk in Bardstown, Kentucky. True story. He was in his mid-60s. He lived his whole life on the grounds at the monastery. When you make your vow to be a part of the monastery, that's where you stay. It's like mom, dad pass away, brother, sister pass away. You don't go home for the funerals. You stay there at the monastery. That's what you do. That's your life. Um, it's part of their vow. Well, there was a widowed lady who had come by. She was lonely. And she started coming by the monastery on a regular basis. And so they built up a friendship, the two of them. Um, well, one morning, unannounced... This old monk packed up his belongings, walked out to the front gate, hopped in the car with a widow, and took off down the road, never to be seen again. True story. You want to know what the moral of the story is? We'll see. The moral of the story is, ladies, if you're looking for love, you may do better at the monastery than you would at the bar. Friends, God is not telling us to avoid all fun. That's not the point of this. God is not telling us that the key to being happy and content is to renounce all worldly possessions and all worldly pleasures to go live in a monastery someplace. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus' first miracle was to do what? Was to turn water into wine, right? He was at a wedding, and they ran out of wine, and he wanted the party, the dancing, the celebrating to be able to continue, and so he turned water into wine so that all that party could continue to go on. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, what does the father do when his lost son returns home? He throws a great big party, that's right. The black-eyed peas, right? We're thumping. Let's get it started around here. 
At the end of human history, God himself promises to throw a great big banquet party for all of his children. Revelation 19 and verse 9 says, And the angel said to me, Write this down, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, God did not place Adam and Eve in the garden with the command, Look but don't touch all of that I've created. Instead, there needs to be a balance between these two extremes. Got one more slide for you here. If you think about hedonism on one side of that, one extreme, and asceticism being the opposite extreme, friends, God is asking us to live somewhere in the middle, a balance between these two extremes. At times, we do indulge. At times, we do enjoy God's creation. At times, we do enjoy all the blessings that God has afforded to us. At times, we do pull up our chair to the banquet table. And then at other times, we relinquish indulgences for a season. We let go of food. It's called fasting. We let go of our cell phones and screens and all the things that distract us in order to apply ourselves, in order to seek God's heart for seasons of our life. But to supplant ourselves at one end of this extreme or the other, friends, that is not God honoring. That is, well, seeking after life on the horizontal plane. That's not how we honor God. Flip back over to Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 11. Notice what Solomon calls all these pursuits. He says of all these attempts at finding happiness and fulfillment, he says, all was vanity. He doesn't say all of these things are sin. He says they were vanity. I was trying to make them ends in themselves. And what I discovered when I pursued marriage, when I pursued you know, fun and partying and enjoying friends, and I pursued comedy. He said, I was trying to make those things end in themselves. I was looking around at life on the horizontal plane, and it just wasn't filling me. It's because he had tried to make those things ends in themselves. Now, that leads us back to our question, then how do I find contentment? How do I find fulfillment? How do I get inner peace? Well, that's a great question. I think you're going to be surprised, perhaps, at the simplicity of the answer. The way to find contentment, the way to find fulfillment, the way to find inner peace in your life is to get quiet before your Creator. When you look at the public ministry of Jesus, before and after he had had long days visiting with people, where did he go? Up on the mountain up on the hilltop, in quiet places, out into the darkness of Gethsemane. That's where the inner man was fed. That's where he refueled. That's where he refocused. It wasn't a comedy club. I'm sure the comedy clubs are great. It wasn't a concert. I'm sure Taylor Swift is great. It wasn't by trying to fill his life with more goals or a longer to-do list. All those things are great, but again, none of those things can be ends in themselves. By God's design, what fills the emptiness within us is a relationship with him. Life on the vertical plane, not pursuing these things out here as ends in themselves. Um, God has put a, a hole in our soul that only he can fill, which is why communing with him is the only way to find lasting peace. I'm going to give you a for instance here. Back in my youth pastor days, uh, one of the things I always challenged students to do was to spend time in quiet with the Lord. And so we had this little uh, a plan, if you would, to try and get students to engage in a daily quiet time. I've got a slide for you here. 
Um, <clears throat> we told them, hey, look, if you're not doing anything, spending time reading scriptures or spending some time in prayer, here's what we'd like for you to do. We'd like you to try to start doing that five minutes a day. And so we had some scripture that we give to students, and they would spend some time reading those scriptures and spending some time in prayer. Five minutes a day, just trying to establish the habit of a daily quiet time. And then we said, when you get consistent with five minutes a day, we'd like you to extend it out to 10 minutes a day. When you get to 10 minutes a day, we'd like you to extend it out to 20 minutes a day. When you're firm in 20 minutes a day, we'd like you to go to that quiet place, and then we want you to stay there until you get your peace. Okay? It may take 10 minutes. It may take 45 minutes. But in other words, we want you to stay there as long as it takes until you have peace with God. Stay on your knees Stay in the quiet space till the Holy Spirit of God has washed over you and spoken words of blessing and encouragement into your mind and fed your soul. Did Jesus get his problems solved in prayer? Did everything out there magically sort itself out because Jesus had spent his time in prayer? No, of course it didn't. But prayer brought Jesus to a place where he could say, not my will, but yours be done. This morning, as I was heading into church, I did what I always do when I get into my truck. I reached up, turned the radio on. About a minute down the road, something checked in my spirit, turned the radio back off. I said, Lord, can we please spend some time together? And so on my way in here this morning in my truck, in the quietness and the darkness of the morning, uh, next 15 minutes or so, me and the Lord had fellowship. And I prayed for things. I prayed for you all. I prayed for the service today. I prayed for God's uh, clarity about the scriptures but mostly, I just enjoyed the silence. I just enjoyed communing with my creator. My heart was settled when I got here. My mind was clear, and I was ready to dive in. So here's my challenge to you this week. If you're not having a daily quiet time, let's get that started. Five minutes a day. Build the habit. If the habit's there, then build on what you're already doing. Let's deepen the intensity of the quiet time. No need to fill it with more scriptures no need to expand your prayer list. Rather, just intensify the silence. Because, friends, it's when we're in that quiet place with the Lord. And I've heard some moms say, the only place I can find quiet in my house is in my bathroom. Well, <laughs> then spend some more time in the bathroom. That's fine. <laughs> friends, peace won't come through stuff. You can't run off anxiety or depression with experiences. Fulfillment and joy and inner peace can only be found through life on the vertical plane by engaging with the God who made us. We may not walk out of our quiet time with all of our problems solved, but we will walk out of our quiet time refreshed and calm and at peace. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you so much for, again, giving us glimpses and vision for where you want us to live, how you want us to live. God, you want us to be a people who feel on the inside calm and peace. And Lord, that peace and calm can only come from a relationship with you. Solomon was the chief among trying to fill that emptiness, and to settle that turmoil with the stuff of this world. He's trying to teach us here, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. <laughs> None of that stuff will satisfy. Lord, in the week ahead, call us to quiet places. May your voice grow louder and the distractions of this world grow more dim. 
We give you this time now. Lord Jesus, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood. We ask, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would begin working and nurturing and calling us. Even in these quiet moments, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.